0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me.
1: Father, we give you great thanks that you have kept your promise and fulfilled our hope And given us your Son. That is a profound truth. And I pray, Lord, as was said already today, renew our minds this Christmas season that we not take that for granted. You have stepped into this world to meet us and to bless us. And we give you praise for that. And you've promised, Lord, that you will come back. And we pray in hope, come. Come. And in between, Lord, we face a world that is partly redeemed, but not fully redeemed. In which there is joy and sorrow. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would open up your word to us and equip us to deal with the hardship. To shape our minds and our hearts to have joy amidst that hardship to see your hand at work, to know what you are up to and to fervently engage in it with you. Lord, do this from your text today, I pray. Spirit, would you be present here in our midst at work in our minds and hearts to teach us, to conform us to your image, to make us more like Christ. That's my prayer, Lord, that he would be lifted up that He would be lifted up in our hearts and minds and lives throughout all of this week and this morning as we look into His Word. Exalt Christ. Change your people. Call in your own. For Christ's glory. Amen. They stripped Him of His multicolored robe of favor threw him in a dry well, and then sold him as a slave. Worse still, while in Egypt, he was unjustly imprisoned and then left there to rot by a man who should have been his friend. But, Events turned and Joseph ended up as the second in command of all of Egypt with vast authority and the capability to save not only the nation of Egypt, but many foreigners who came to him asking and begging for help, including those same brothers who had sold him those years before. The dramatic story of Joseph from the last section of the book of Genesis. And the story all comes to a pinnacle when Joseph finally reveals his identity to these brothers and they are terrified and then relieved when he forgives them, and then terrified again after their father dies, thinking that now is the time we get what's coming to us. But Joseph reassures them with this statement, the statement that explains the hidden providential purposes of God in all of the hardship and suffering that Joseph went through. This is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph said to them, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. That's a statement about providence. You, you brothers, you meant evil and there's purpose or there's intention and God meant it for good. The very same thing. Not and God turned it for good, he responded, but purpose, intention on both parts. You meant evil, God meant it for good. Towards what end? For the saving of many people for the keeping of many people alive, including the people of Israel. God in providence exercising purpose in hardship and suffering for the sake of salvation. That's what we're going to be considering this morning in Acts chapter 28. Last week in Acts 27, we considered the topic of providence and promises as displayed in a great Storm at sea, followed by a shipwreck. Paul's on his way from Caesarea to Rome to be finally tried before Caesar. But along the way, the ship he's on gets caught in a massive storm off of Crete, blown all across the ocean, the Mediterranean Sea. And finally, they all give up any hope of being saved. And at finally, that moment of low, bleak hopelessness, God steps in with a message of hope and says in a promise Paul, I am going to save you, and I am going to save all of those with you. So take heart and take heed. You've got some responsibility here, some action. And So they do. They're encouraged, and they act, and one thing leads to another. And literally, the ship runs into the island of Malta. And through this chain of events, they are brought safely ashore. Very last statement of chapter 27 that connects us to our passage today. So let me read it. Acts 28, verses 1 to 16. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they'd waited a long time and and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases all came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months... We set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteole. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. The chapter begins right where the previous one left off with that passive statement in verse 1 We were brought safely through. By whom? By God, of course. God brought them ashore at Malta, about a 100 miles south of Sicily, in a shipwreck. And the locals on the island, they'd seen the ship come in and, and had seen it wreck and had seen hundreds of men pour out of it and make their way towards the shore, and they're there to receive them. and you kind of wonder how this is going to go, because you can imagine some villagers being disturbed by several hundred haggard men, many of them in chains, suddenly washing ashore right in the middle of their village. Is this going to be a violent greeting? In fact, they greet them very hospitably. They welcome them with unusual kindness and immediately set about lighting what must have been a very large fire to warm them. These men have been starved for a couple of weeks and they've spent their last bit of energy fighting through the surf and there now they're going to be warmed around what must have been a great big fire. They're going to need a lot of wood and so Paul wants to help out and he gathers a bundle of wood and in so doing sets off a chain of events that leads to open doors for gospel ministry gathers this wood, and he throws it on the fire, and out hops a snake. It's a viper of some sort, and it bites Paul in the hand, and it hangs there just long enough for a number of people to see it, which is a dark omen to the Maltese. Clearly, this man is in some way evil, probably a murderer, and he's offended the gods, and they're going to get him. And somehow he escaped their attempt to get him in the sea, and now Justice, a goddess, has finally got him. He bit him with a snake. He's going to die. So they're waiting. And nothing happens. And, And they don't have any true revelation for God, and so they're just making this up as they go along. And so now with different circumstances, it totally changes. Now he's not a bad man condemned by the gods. Now the serpent and the sea are actually evil things, and he's a god who's been unable to be overcome by these evil things, and so now they want to hold him in great respect and in high honor, which is how he gets connected to the leading official of the whole island, Publius. Publius welcomes him, probably Luke and maybe the centurion as well, into his home, in fact, and entertains them hospitably there. And while he's there, Paul hears that Publius's father is sick, it says, with dysentery and fever. It's probably what's known as Maltese fever, which was a a centuries-long problem. They didn't actually figure this out until the late 19th century. But it was a long-lasting long long disease that was often painful and sometimes fatal. So it was of great concern to the locals, and this man has it. And Paul hears about that, goes into his presence, prays, making it clear, I'm not God, I am looking for power from some other god. He prays, lays hands on him, and heals him, which sparks the whole island then coming to him and to Dr. Luke with all kinds of diseases and illnesses, and it sparks a miraculous healing ministry that lasts for quite some time. Perhaps some medical missions there too, because the word would allow not just miraculous healing, but also medical care. Everything coming together here, resulting in a ministry of evangelism. We don't get the details there. It just says a, a large healing ministry. Sounds a lot like Acts 19, where there was a large healing ministry in Ephesus. But at this point, though, we're supposed to be able to fill in enough of the blanks that when we see something about Paul being declared a God, we know he would refute that. We see something about Paul praying, we know he would be clarifying who he's praying to. He's explaining the gospel in the context of this massive healing ministry. And the result is that by the time the three months of their wintering have passed, the people hold them in great regard. But it is time to leave Malta. As the weather turns, they have to sail on to Rome. And verses 11 to 16 describe that trip. Most notably in verse 14, when they finally come to their port of debarkation in Italy, finally, at last, what do they find? Christians. From a church there that Paul did not plant, probably knew nothing about. But there are Christians there, and and while they wait there for a week, Paul's allowed to fellowship with them, makes their acquaintance, and is greatly encouraged by them. And finally, they press on towards Rome, and what do they find? More Christians from the Roman church, again, a church that Paul did not plant. And they come out, it says, 30, 40 miles, several days' journey to meet him, which is surely an encouragement to him, but there's a little more than just encouragement. It's also an honoring Of him, which displays some significant change in the minds of these Romans. Terminology used in verse 15 is nearly a technical way of describing how people go out to welcome a visiting dignitary and escort him back in. This occurs a couple of times in the New Testament. Once in Matthew 25, with the parable of the ten virgins. They are awaiting the arrival of the bridegroom and then he comes near and they go out to meet him, obviously to escort him back in to the city where they're going to celebrate him. He's the the honored guest. It also occurs in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, a chapter from which we get the idea of the rapture. We are awaiting the coming of the bridegroom, if you will, the coming of Christ and those who are awaiting him when he comes near go out to meet him And I believe, as the terminology and and the usage implies, we'll then turn around and come right back with him to the place where he is coming to be celebrated as the dignitary. Christians differ on that, but I think the grammar and the usage of the terms point us that way. But where this hits our passage today, who's the most important person in Rome? In the world. Caesar. Caesar. He is the dignitary, like with a capital D, the dignitary, the most important person. And there are Romans who say, you know, in fact, the person that we want to go out and welcome back to the city of Rome to celebrate as the dignitary is a little man chained to a private in the army of the Caesar. They've had a significant change in priorities in the minds of Romans, this man is the one we want to honor. How did that change come about? By the gospel, of course. Romans even believe that Paul should be honored more than the Caesar because of who he stands for, Christ. Paul sees them come and he is greatly encouraged and he gives thanks and then presses on to Rome. Read more about that next week, but while in Rome, he's kept as an uncondemned Roman citizen, he's allowed his private residence, under guard, but allowed to live with some freedom. That's the text for today. It contains two different settings, one of which describes the ministry on Malta, and one of which describes some of the events in the early days in Italy, moving towards testifying before Caesar. Two different settings, and I'm going to make an observation from each one of those sections and then tie it all together at the end. Our first observation is again related to the doctrine of providence from a slightly different angle than what we've considered before. Here it is. Providentially, God uses hardship to fulfill his great commission through us. Providentially, God working through providence uses hardship to fulfill his great commission through us. We talked about providence before. Briefly, providence is how God works in the world through natural agents like weather, storms, animals like vipers, people like sailors and soldiers. He works in the world through natural events, people doing their own thing, if you will, but accomplishing his purposes. That's providence. Last week we saw it connected to promises and and a call to action, but here I think there's not so much a call to action, but more of an encouragement, giving of perspective. The hardships that we each face in life. I'm using a vague word like hardship to to catch a whole spectrum of things, from the the inconvenient, the, the... Troubling, you know, slightly physically uncomfortable like being in, in a cold rain. All the way to the tragic and the devastating. Loss of a, of a loved one or a disease and everything in between. I just want to be vague about hardship, the stuff we would prefer to avoid. All the hardships that we face in life are providentially used by God to fulfill His great commission. That is God's purpose in the world to lift up Christ everywhere, in the minds and in the hearts of everyone, from corner to corner, all across the globe. He is about making Himself His Son known and loved and revered that is his great commission to make disciples in all of the nations. To lift up Christ so as to draw people to him for the first time, or, for those of us who already believe, to draw us more deeply to him, to hold on to him more tightly. That's the great commission. That's what God is supremely about. Exalting Christ for the blessing of his people. Where does that show up in this passage? Obviously, in Paul, having the opportunity to lift up Christ on Malta. To lift him up in the eyes of Publius. And then on the whole island. It's a ministry that erupts there. Not just in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, but the ends of the earth. In fact, even the distant shores and the islands like unreached Malta. will hear the gospel from the lips of the Apostle. And how did that happen? Look at the events. 276 men wash ashore. The ruler of the island not going to invite all of them into his living room. And he's not going to let all of them visit the bedside of his sick father. How does Paul get there? Well, he thinks Paul's a god. And you better entertain the gods. You better be nice to the gods. In that culture of the day, gods often visited the earth. And you had to respond to them appropriately or they might have wrath poured out on you. So you entertain the gods and you're polite and kind to them. And while they're here, maybe you can help out my dad. Well, why does he think he's a god? Because he got bit by a snake and didn't die. And how did he get bit by a snake? Well, they were making a fire. Why were they making a fire? Because it's cold and wet. And why are they there cold and wet? Because they just got shipwrecked. And why were they shipwrecked? Because they were in a hurricane. The chain of events filled with hardship. All kinds of stuff there that, if we could, we would vote to avoid i don 't want to be in a hurricane i don 't want to be shipwrecked i don 't like being cold and wet i don 't want to be bitten by a poisonous snake, but God providentially worked all of those things into paul 's life ephesians one eleven says that God works all things, all things, hardship included all things according to the counsel of his will. God has a will, and God counsels himself based on his will as to what God should do, and God always takes his own advice, and so he does it, working it out through all things, hardship included, purpose, intention. God meant the storm. God meant the shipwreck. God meant the weather conditions. He meant the fire. He meant the snake because he meant the evangelization of Malta. Providentially ordering all of those hardships so as to carry the gospel to an unreached people. That's what the text is showing us. They were on Malta for three months. Lots of stuff happened. This is all we're told. This is the point. God works hardships together so as to accomplish his great commission. Lifting up Christ. We've talked about how it is that hardship lifts up and exalts Christ. We've talked about that before. To put it simply, how that works that when we encounter, as believers, when we encounter hardship in our lives, it affirms, it confirms the truth of Psalm 73. When we as believers face hardship, Psalm 73 comes true in our lives. Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. When we say, my flesh and my heart And my retirement account, and my employment, and my relationships may fail. And my hot water heater may break, and I may get a flat tire, and I may get cancer. But you, God, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When in that context of hardship, we come with that last sentence, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What we say, what we show in that is that God is most worthy of our hearts and he is the one who sustains us. We say in our lives as we, as we walk in peace and enjoyment hardship, Psalm 73 is true, God is real. It's all that he says he is and he can be that for you. That's how hardship is used. Obviously some of why God brings it too, but I want to walk a little further down the why path. Something else I want to consider this morning about why does God use hardship? He uses it. He advances the gospel in conjunction with hardship often because hardship is the medium that is most consistent with the message of the Great Commission. Do you know what a medium is, as I'm using it there? A medium is a, a means of carrying a message, like television is a medium. Radio is a medium. It can carry the message of sports or news or whatever. Well, the message that we have to carry, we the church, we Christians have to carry, at this point in salvation history, is primarily a message of a humble, merciful, crucified Messiah. Messiah. A message of a lamb who was silent while led to slaughter. Bruised, crushed, slain for the sins of his own creatures. One who embraced suffering in this life was known as a man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. A suffering servant. He is indeed... Seated on high and reigning over all things. We must never forget that. But we must also realize that at this point in salvation history, right now, He has not yet forced, in sovereign might, He has not yet forced His reign, but instead, humbly offers it. This is our message. This is the Gospel. It's a message of a cross of a lamb, of death, of humility that brings peace. And on that one's authority, on Christ's authority, we call out to all who are weary and heavy laden. Not arrogant and proud and successful, but who are weary and heavy laden and say, come to this one and you will find rest for your soul amidst hardship that burdens you And weighs you down. You will come to him and find rest for your soul by humble, submitted faith. That's the message. And any triumphalistic, proud, carefree, trouble-free, fun, entertaining, playful, cool, trendy, trivial, frivolous, yippy-skippy medium sounds a note off-key with that message. Like we're auto-execs going to Washington to beg for a bailout, flying three separate corporate jets. The manner in which the message is delivered does not commend it, but undercuts it. It says, I don't think they even believe this. It's not to say that we can't ever laugh or have fun. God actually commands our joy and if you're hanging around me long enough, I am way about joy. The supremacy of God in all things leads to joy in all peoples. But it is a joy, paraphrase CS Lewis from a, a different context, it is a joy that takes everything very seriously. It is a joy that has seen people and has seen reality in the world and takes it very seriously and joins the hardship with the sorrow so that we are like Paul, sorrowing but ever rejoicing. If they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute us. If he knew sorrows and pain and hardship, so will we, and so will all who come to him. But along with that, they and we in the midst of hardship can know peace, not instead of the hardship. And that kind of message is best delivered by a medium of people standing in hardship who are filled with joy. So providentially, God often, not always, but often calls his people into hardship from the minor the major he uses hardship to fulfill his great commission to show we can walk with him and know him as fullness of joy the strength of our hearts and our portion forever brothers and sisters if we can come to see that kind of purpose in the hardships in life it will be of great help to us they will still hurt they will still produce tears. I don't pretend otherwise. Many of you know much more than I do the reality of that. It will not change. It will not make hardships fun. There will still be hardships. But there can be great help for us in knowing something of what God is up to in them. And of knowing that He has not abandoned us. Our great temptation amidst hardships is to think God left And I've been abandoned in this. But seeing it in this way says, no, God's right there with me on purpose taking me through this. So as to show me something of himself and to show others something of him in me. To reflect him and his goodness to those who still walk in darkness. So as you face hardship of whatever sort, may this be your mind, your prayer and your mindset. Lord, maybe this is what I need to experience, to experience the great good of seeing you and valuing you more deeply. And maybe this in me is what others need to see so that they can experience you and value you more deeply. Maybe it will create opportunities for me that are right around the corner. I'm going to walk into them tomorrow. Opportunities for evangelism or for ministry to other Christians or for personal growth. Maybe I'll never see what comes of it. But I know and here's the part where it connects to this point here, but I know because you work in providence that you are at work in this, accomplishing your good purposes, working all things together according to the counsel of your will, working all things together for the good of those who love you. Those are the same thing. My good, his will. So you think like that. And you trust him. And you fight to see him amidst the hardship. Not primarily for the hardship to go away. Nothing wrong with working to eliminate hardships. But our primary goal has to be, Christ, would you lift yourself up in my eyes? And through this, would you lift yourself up in other people's eyes? You work hardship to fulfill your great commission. Use me. I trust you. Seeing like that, seeing hardships like that can help us, can encourage us. And in mentioning encouragement, I come to my second point. Second observation is drawn mainly from the second half of the passage. God encourages us in the Great Commission by showing us his hand. Showing us his hand We face hardships in the Great Commission. He encourages us by showing us his hand, that it's his power as he works to accomplish his Great Commission. Having realized the task that he's called us to, we've been talking about throughout the whole book of Acts, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, realize that's what we're called to, that we're all under orders. And if you take just a second and think about that, or if you attempt to engage in it for a minute, you realize that's difficult. And It is. It's so the temptation, and it's really easy to just bow out, to just look at that and say, you know, I'm going to treat this like a smorgasbord. I think I'll take some of this instead. We're not given that option. We're called to this, and it's hard. And God graciously, right there in the middle of that, intervenes to minister to us in this ministry. How so? Sometimes he speaks words of promise, like we saw last week. Either he visits us and speaks promise to us, or more commonly today, he actually speaks through his word, promises written down, he'll commune with us in prayer, he can kind of reveal some of what he's doing, some of his purposes, but in this passage, we see him particularly working to encourage Paul in a way that involves the fellowship of the saints. Verses 14 to 16. Paul meets and then gets to spend a week with the Christians in the port city where he lands, and then he meets the Christians come out from Rome. And last half of verse 15, on seeing them, he gave thanks to God and took courage. Because the hardships are over? No, he's, he's in chains going to Rome to stand trial in front of Caesar. The hardships are not by any stretch over. So it's not like a mission accomplished. Whew. No, he takes courage for something that's still to come. So what's going on there? How is that encouraging? Why does that generate thanks in his heart? Some years ago, we lived and ministered in a predominantly Muslim country that overall was quite resistant to the gospel. ministry was very difficult there, and it was easy to think that make disciples of all nations somehow excluded this one in particular. It was hard. However, I had an opportunity one Sunday to worship with what was the largest congregation of nationals at the time in in the country. There were larger churches made up of foreigners like myself, but this was a church made up of totally locals and a chance to go there and worship. Former Muslims who had come to Christ. And throughout the worship service, which was led by a pastor who had been a respected, learned Muslim cleric before coming to Christ, becoming a pastor, led by this pastor throughout the whole worship service. We could follow along a little bit here and there with some of the major obvious parts, but by and large, because of the language barrier, we were outsiders looking in. But it didn't matter that day. It was a time of high praise and worship, of giving thanks to God and taking courage, you might say. Why? Look around. Look around. We're in a city of 16 million people at the time. And every day, five times a day, loudspeakers on thousands of minarets from thousands of mosques all across the city call people to bow down and pray to a God who isn't there. And the the vast majority of those people ignore that call, but they are also equally resistant to any call to come to Christ. But here in this church... 150 former Muslims bow down to Jesus in tears and in joy and call him Lord. Praise God. That does not come about naturally. But it is coming about. It's the hand of God calling in his people men and women and boys and girls, out of Islam to faith in Christ, right there in front of my eyes, it happens. Even there in that city, the arm of the Lord was not too short to save. So I praise Him, and I give thanks to God for what He has visibly done, and I take courage that He can do that through me too, tomorrow and the next day. Many of them, if you ask them their stories, there are strange, odd, weird, random, providential connections through all different paths of their lives. I can be a part of that because God's doing it. Take courage, Steve. That's the kind of thing that Paul sees with his eyes when he sees the Roman believers fruit. Not of his own ministry, he's never been there, of God's ministry of God's determination to fulfill God's great commission. The great commission is not the task that God has assigned to us while he leaves and, goes, and do, goes off to do something else. It's God's task that he uses us in, but he's the one driving it. And when you see it happening, you're seeing the hand of God at work. Paul saw that and therefore gave thanks to God and took courage He realizes I'm walking in an intimidating world that is full of hardship and it is a world that is under the hand of God. That encourages him. God provides that view for Paul in compassionate care for him. What does that mean for us? Look for the hand of God. You have a task that's been assigned to you that's going to be tremendously discouraging Be encouraged in it by looking for the hand of God. How do you see it? Well, one easy way. Read missionary literature, past or present. Read and see what God is doing in some crazy ways, some far-off places. Or, right here in this place, get in the game. And as you pray for opportunities and take the initiative to to make friendships and then build friendships with non-Christian friends and neighbors and acquaintances at work, and then pray for opportunities in those friendships and then take the initiative to ask questions of substance and to listen, to love and to care for people, you'll find the hand of God at work using even you. You see Him at work before you causing longing and questions and uncertainty in their minds. And that'll encourage you, hey, I'm not the first one to walk this path. God's walked it before me. That's encouraging. But the unique thing that I think this passage commends to us, because it shows Paul being encouraged when he fellowships with Christians, not not in missions work, but in fellowship with Christians, the unique thing I think it says to us is look for the hand of God Amongst the people of God. Fellowship with believers. Connect to them. Our time of fellowship with other Christians, and probably many of us enjoyed something like this over the Thanksgiving holiday, but when you're around people in some depth, that, that can and that should be a, a time of fun and of, of enjoyment and entertainment, but... It also is meant to be a little bit like God taking you over to show you his trophy case. A trophy case like most schools have. You know, we have one down the hall here where there is kept for everybody to see the evidence of past teams' triumphs. So you can look there. Look at that team that won the regional championship in such and such a year. Look at these folks that won the state championship in this and such a year. You look at their past triumphs. God has a trophy case. Guess what it is? Us. And he means when we fellowship together, he means to, in a sense, take me and say, Steve, look. Look at my triumph in that person's life. Look what I did in these folks' lives right here. Wasn't that amazing? Aren't I great? And look over here at how I delivered so and so from this and that. We're supposed to look at the trophies and see the hand of God, not to say, man, those people are strong and determined and resilient. That's idolatry. Like Audrey. But to say, man, those people have a God who is strong and determined and resilient and carries them through, praise him, and he's the same God tomorrow as he was yesterday. Take courage from it. He wants to walk you up to his trophy case and show you his past triumphs in the people of God. Tragically, though, many of us don't really care to look. Hi, how are you? What are you doing this afternoon? The kind of conversations that I have at the door with everybody as they're going by, <laughs> that's the kind of conversation that most of us have with most of us. That's too bad. You miss the opportunity to see the hand of God. To find out what He's actually brought different people through. Or what He's bringing them through right now. To pray and then see Him answer. And so you see His hand in that. We're meant to be a community that comes together and sees one another. Like actually eye-to-eye contact. Conversation that sits down and connects It's a family. Not of a hundred acquaintances or two hundred acquaintances. It means for more. It's one of the, the key ways that he encourages us in our assigned task of the Great Commission. He connects us to people and shows us his hand. Gives us cause to thank him. And to hope in Him that He'll bring that same grace tomorrow. God encourages us in the Great Commission by showing us His hand. So, if I want to tie this together, these two points, I think it commends us to be encouraged through your hardships. Be encouraged to see some of God's purpose in it and be encouraged to see God's hand. Be encouraged through your hardships as you embrace God's great commission. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would do those two things in your people now, that you would open our eyes to see your purpose, what you mean in our hardships, Maybe, Lord, you need to give us courage to just trust that you mean something, even though we can't see it. Lord, encourage us by showing us purpose, and encourage us, your people, by showing us your hand. Particularly, Lord, I pray that you would bind us together as a people, as a body, as a family. Lord, you've called us to something great that is hard. Show us yourself, I pray. Encourage your people. Call those here, Lord, who are not your people yet. Lord, call those in. Seek them out and save them. Father, would you do this? The message of a cross that offers hope amidst hardship. Lord, be at work here. Be honored by what happens here, what happens tomorrow, the rest of this week, to be praised in the midst of your people. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah.